This is an AMI podcast. Welcome to My Life in Books, Authors Talking Books, presented by blind writer and broadcaster Red Sale from his home in London, England. Rebecca Stott is something of a rarity among writers. Not only is she a prize-winning biographer, she's also the author of three highly regarded works of historical fiction. Her latest novel, Dark Earth, transports the reader back to one of the most obscure periods of European history, the years following the collapse of the Roman Empire. It's an era that fascinates her, and, as we'll hear, her research has taken her far beyond libraries and museums. Before I introduce Rebecca... Here's a clip of Hannah Morrish narrating Dark Earth. An island in the Thames, circa AD 500. Isla and Blue are sitting up on the mound watching the river creep up on the wrecks and over the black stubs of the old jetties out on the mudflats, waiting for Father to finish his work in the forge. Along the far riverbank, the ghost city, the great line of its long-abandoned river wall, its crumbling gates and towers, is making its upside-down face in the river again. Something's coming, sister, Blue says. Look. Isla looks. The wind has picked up. It scatters the birds wading on the mudflats. It catches at the creepers that grow along the ghost city wall, it lifts and rustles them like feathers. Could be rain, Isla says. The wind's turned. It's late spring. There has been no rain for weeks. No clouds, just the baking, glaring forge fire of the sun. At first, after the long winter, the sisters had welcomed the sun coming in so hot. Dull roots had stirred. Flowers came early. First the primroses and bluebells in the wood, then the tiny spears of the cuckoo pint and the blackthorn blossom in the hedgerows. The bean seedlings had pushed up through the soil in their garden, fingers unfurling into sails. Now the reeds whisper like old bones. The sisters swim in the river when they can steal away from the field or from father's forge. Around them the sun beats down on the mudflats. Meat turns. Flies gather. Hannah Morrish, narrating Dark Earth, written by my guest, Rebecca Stott. Rebecca, welcome to My Life in Books. Hello. We've just met Isla and Blue staring across the river to an abandoned London. Can you describe the civil society that existed after the Romans had left and how we know that London had been abandoned for so long. Yeah, well, we know that the, the Romans left their northernmost colonial outpost in round about 410, 420. Uh, there's some documentation about that. Uh, they withdrew their last soldiers and their last administrators from, you know, Londinium, but also their other big stone cities that they had dotted about southern England. And after that, well, in a sense... We don't know for certain what happened, but what we do know from the archaeological record is that almost nobody went inside. And we know that because the number of objects that archaeologists have found dropped within the walls that can be dated to between 420 and round about 900 AD, you could probably fit inside a single shoebox. So, I mean, that... When I, when I was first heard that information, I was like, sorry, can you repeat that? And the archaeologist did. And it absolutely blew my mind. And the dark earth in the title uh, refers to the fact that archaeologists, when they dig down through the layers of London and they hit the 400 years in which Londinium was abandoned, and it's just a black carpet of soil, nothing in it. Um, it's two meters deep in some places. And so they call they call that layer dark earth. And it's not just Londinium that has it, but other Roman cities after they've been abandoned too. So what they think is that, you know, you imagine 400 years of you no know, humans in there, 
the leaves are falling, vegetation's forming, worms are working, and it's like a giant compost heap. So all of that, by the time Isla and Blue are looking at it, it's been abandoned for a hundred years. So, you know, you can imagine that there would be wild animals in there, there would be vegetation growing over every part of every wall, there'd be cracks in everything, roofs would be off, trees would be coming through the roofs. Um, that, you know, it would have been a place of great beauty still, I imagine. You know, if you imagine for someone like Isla in Blue, who's only ever lived in wooden buildings, to see a city this big, this high, this grand, in stone, even crumbling, would have been absolutely astonishing. Astonishing for any Saxon or Anglo-Saxon coming into the country, but also to all the people who lived in Britain, who might have memories or grandparents or great-grandparents who remembered the Romans. Yeah, so that's where I started with this book, was I want, I was so fascinated. It reminded me of kind of Sleeping Beauty's castle. Uh, it made me ask all sorts of questions about, well, what would they have seen? What would they have been scared by? You know, did they think it was haunted? That's a lot of archaeologists think that perhaps the Anglo-Saxons and the remaining Britons uh, didn't go in because they thought it was haunted. And, well, that doesn't seem implausible to me. And the inspiration for the story actually came from a real artefact that was found during an excavation of Roman London in the 1960s. Yes, so um, we know that the Britons and the Anglo-Saxons living around the ruined city didn't go in because there were almost no objects that they left inside, except there was one. So in 1968, uh, a young archaeologist was digging on the north bank of the Thames in the remains of what he knew was an old Roman bathhouse. And on top of the fallen tiles of the bathhouse, he found an Anglo-Saxon brooch. He knew it was Anglo-Saxon because it was datable. There was another one that was datable, that it matched exactly. So he knew without a shadow of a doubt, that an Anglo-Saxon woman had walked across the fallen roof tires of this ruined bathhouse and dropped her brooch. Um, that brooch sits on the wall in the Museum of London. And I saw it. It's an inch across. It's, it's intricate. It's rusty. And when I stood and looked at it for a really long time. And it, it was almost like a portal. Like, what was that woman doing there? Was she curious? Was she sightseeing? Was she running away? Was it a love tryst? You know, what was she doing in there if none of her kin and friends were prepared to go inside the city, maybe because they thought it was haunted, and she did, then what was she doing? What was the nature of her curiosity, if indeed it was curiosity that took her there? And the world you paint is one of superstition, but also multiculturalism. Both Isla and Blue are mixed race, and... It's a time of jockeying for positions between the many tribes who have either been brought in as mercenaries or to bolster the Romans when they were there and who then decided to stay, or from the indigenous people who've been pushed more to the fringes of society. Absolutely. I mean, I, I just think it's really important for us to remember that you know, whilst many people would point to this period as the beginning of what we know of England, you know, this is the beginning of Englishness, etc., etc. But it begins so mixed. It is so mixed, I think, particularly around Londinium and London, where, you know, this was the great trading outpost of the Roman Empire. And we know now, from looking at the bones of soldiers who have been buried all over the empire, that they came from all over the empire. You know, Roman soldiers came from North Africa. They came from, you know, every part of that vast empire. Um, and also the traders who would have been coming into London would have come from all over the empire. So, you know, just as we hear today, going through London now, it's full of different languages and different cultures. And it would have been the same then. Um, but especially, I think, after the Romans left, because then you've got this huge surge of migrants coming from uh, what we would now call Germanic countries and Scandinavia, you know, Northern Europe um, coming over. We know now that there were problems, particularly along the coastal areas of the Germanic countries, because there was a great deal of flooding 
right? There was storms, so, so land would have been lost. So, you know, in some ways, these might have been not just economic migrants, as it were, coming in, looking for, for new land, new opportunities, but climate migrants coming over to Britain. So lots of different languages. And I think it's also really important that we don't just think of the Anglo-Saxons or the Angli and the Saxons and the Frisians as one thing. You know, they were many, many tribes and they, their, their languages would have been different. Their gods would have been different to each other. So just, you know, just because you're, an, you're a Saxon doesn't mean that all Saxons believe the same things and speak the same language. There would have been variations. So huge cultural, ethnic diversity and a lot of intermarriage as well, because we know, for instance, that, you know, right up on Hadrian's Wall, which was, of course, sometime before this, Hadrian's Wall was built, there was a, a group of uh, soldiers who had been posted to help build Hadrian's Wall and defend it, who came from North Africa, came from you know, essentially Syria, um, and lived there for, for a long time. So they would have been marrying local people. But yes, I, in my novel, I just thought, well, many of those people, those people who had come to live here as traders or as soldiers or as slaves, might have stayed because they'd married local people. So I think it's kind of hard to underestimate how mixed the, this culture would have been. But of course, it does also create tensions between the different tribes. And one of the recurring questions in the early chapters of Dark Earth is, who do you belong to? And one of the ways in which alliances are forged between the different tribes is with ceremonial swords. And Isla and Blue's father is a swordsmith. Yes, that's right. Um... I read, when I was doing all my research for this book, I read in a book by Robin Fleming that what happens in the two or three hundred years after the Romans left is increasing amount of sword production and then fancy sword production. And one of the things that she speculates in her book is that once you start to see fancy swords being made and fancy metalwork generally, that usually means there's somebody who can commission it, somebody who's getting wealthy, somebody who wants to do a bit of conspicuous consumption, <laughs> somebody who wants to look more important than everybody else. And, you know, what that does is it can, it shows us a way of kind of mapping onto other records that what you're beginning to see is the, is the rise of feudalism, the rise of what we might call warlords or overlords, people who rose to some degree of power began to monopolise the local area, maybe then start taking taxes from people, starting to produce surplus, starting to produce a bit of wealth from that surplus and therefore able to commission fancy swords. And when I went to work with Hector Cole, who is an amazing contemporary swordsmith who has learnt the Anglo-Saxon ways, has taught himself the Anglo-Saxon ways, he said to me, he said, having a ceremonial sword, I call them fire-tongued swords. He said, having one of those in this period is a bit like driving a Maserati. Um, <laughs> so why I thought that was interesting is because we're seeing a, a society that may have been hand-to-mouth for a hundred years, you know, people getting through the winter as best they can, sharing with their neighbours, getting on as best as they can, not not able to really afford conflict because you've just got to, you've just got to get your kids through the winter. And then, you know, what, what we're beginning to see then, the period in which I set the novel, is the rise of the overlords. So we're seeing, uh, you know, society in rapid transition towards what will become feudalism and what will become, you know, the dividing up of the kingdoms of England uh, under, under kings. And you mentioned going and visiting Hector. You took your research way beyond the museums and the libraries and actually got down into his forge, watched how he made the swords and reproduced that process and the heat and the smell beautifully in the book. It, it, they're some of the most visceral parts of the book. Oh, thank you. Yes, I, I have so much gratitude to Hector. I mean, not only is he an extraordinary individual, he's, I think he's in his 80s now, but he's given up his whole life to trying to work out how these, what we call pattern welded swords, were made. You know, like, what kind of twisting of metal was required to produce this amazing patterning down the middle. 
um, how long would it take? What kind of charcoal would you use? And so on. So when I went to spend a day with him, uh, he not only showed me the forge, but also just talked me through the process. And that was fascinating in itself because, I mean, even just for an example, I asked him to describe to me the colours of the fire. You know, how do you know when the fire is ready to, to forge with? Like, if you've got no thermometer uh, and you can't test the heat of your fire, and it's crucial, you know, because if you go too early or go too late with your with your adding your metal uh, or putting your, your, your blade in, then, you know, you might have to start all over again if you get it wrong. So he explained how you have to have a really good eye for the colour of the fire as it gets its heart in it, he said. You know, I love that. It's like, oh, he said, oh, no, no, the fire hasn't got its heart in it yet. Um, he, and, he, and he showed me exactly the point where the, the heart came into the fire. And that was the point where it was a particular kind of blue that he was looking for. And that's when I absolutely thought one of one of the, the, the Smith's daughters has to be called blue, you know, because the, the infinite variations of blue that the fire produces in the middle is just so, so beautiful. So, yeah, Hector, not just watching Hector, but listening to Hector and asking him things like, you know, OK, so if you were going to scavenge in the ruined city and you were looking for metal that you could smelt down and use again, because we know they did that, then what would you be looking for? And he didn't hesitate, almost as if he kind of had already been there in his mind. Um, he said, oh, you'd be looking for the big nails. And I said, what, what do you mean the big nails? And he said, well, the Romans would have used these great big iron nails. We know because we've got so many of them in their door frames, in their furniture, in their, uh, you know, it's, it's all the wood that they used within their stone houses. So, so you, you know, he said, you just strip all of that out if you're a looter looking for metal. You strip all of that out of a ruined temple or a ruined warehouse and you make a huge fire and you burn it. And then when you come back the next day, you sift through it for the big nails. Um, it's almost like gold digging or something, you know, <laughs> except that you're going, you're going into the ashes of a fire to bring out all of this fabulous iron. Uh, that can be smelted down and used again. Early recycling. Yeah, early recycling. But Hector was was such a blessing to me because, you know, you can't have those kinds of conversations except with people who are a bit geeky like you, you know, in, in a very particular <laughs> way, uh, who have spent time inside lost civilizations. And it's hard physical work. And Isla and Blue's father is getting older and needs somebody to help him in the forge. And... He employs Isla, the older of the two sisters, and yet she is not allowed in the forge. This is a, a, a time of superstition. And she learns to her cost that if you tell stories, you can't always control where those stories are going to end up taking you. She tells stories of the inside of the forge that lead her and her family to be exiled. Yes, yes. It seemed to me, and it seemed to other people as well, that you know, when you look at Anglo-Saxon camps, quite often the forge is outside the wall or close to the outside of the wall, you know, or even separate. And you know, obviously, you've got a wooden camp, you don't, and you've got a fire going all the time. You know, it might just have been a fire consideration, but. Other people think that because Smiths did this extraordinary work of turning one thing into another thing, that they were regarded as having some degree of magical power. Uh, the way that some Smiths have been buried, for instance, would suggest that there was a kind of belief that they had some kind of magic. Um, so, you know, Isla learns to use this. And I think that's what the, the book is about to a, to a large degree, actually, is that when people tell stories about you, you can learn to make those stories or turn those stories to your advantage. You know, you can make people afraid of you. You can make them afraid of coming into the forge. You can spook people. And if you can spook people, then they'll stay away. But then there's this tipping point where suddenly it turns right against you and people are, you know, hunting you down. And of course, Isla, having gone inside the forge to help her father, becomes highly skilled herself. But once people discover that she's been doing that, and of course she's cursed the swords as a consequence, because women, you know, because of superstition, aren't, as you said, aren't allowed in there. 
then the local overlord wants to track her down, not just because she has broken the law and, and cursed these expensive swords that he has commissioned by working on them, but also because she's one of the few people in the country who can still do it. So, you know, all sorts of reasons why people want Isla, um, partly because they're spooked by her, but partly also that, uh, you know, she is an outlaw, but also because she has this, this extraordinary skill that's nonetheless a forbidden or a taboo skill for a woman. Yes, it's very much a patriarchal society and in many ways very reminiscent of the fundamentalist Christian sect that you were brought up in and describe in your own memoir, In the Days of Rain, that we will discuss after this break. Share your views on the books you love with Red. Email feedback at ami.ca or leave a voicemail by calling 844 844- one two two one 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 one. Welcome back to My Life in Books. This week, I'm in conversation with Rebecca Stott. Before the break, we were talking about her latest novel, Dark Earth, which bears a lot of parallels to her award-winning memoir, in the days of rain. Both are worlds in which superstition and suspicion are rife, and what is seen as natural and unnatural is controlled by a small group of elder men. Rebecca, describe the sect that you were brought up in. Oh, well, it's difficult. I'll try and do it in a nutshell. So they are a Christian fundamentalist group that believe that they have to live separately from the rest of the world in order to not be contaminated by the world. And the world, they believe, is run by Satan. And so in order to keep themselves uh, pure and ready to go with Christ in the rapture because they believe that Christ will come and take them off the planet at any moment because they're the only pure ones. If they are going to go in the rapture, they have to keep themselves entirely separate from the rest of the world. So um, I was born into that fourth generation and the sect, the, the cult, I would call it a cult, goes back to 1820. Uh, but yes, entirely run by men. Women have to keep their heads covered. They are entirely subject to the authority of men. They can't question the authority of men. They're not allowed to work once they're married. They're expected to raise very large numbers of children. Nobody's allowed to go to university. They are schooled separately. So the children have very little contact with the outside world. Yeah, very strict dress codes. No pets, no wristwatches, no cinema, no newspapers. Yeah, I mean, you can imagine. Everything uh, absolutely controlled by those in power, who we called ministering brothers. Yeah, it's very puritanical, very separatist. And like any totalitarian system, it was paranoid. And your father was one of the exactors, one of the inquisitors, at a a time of upheaval for the exclusive brethren in the late 1960s and 1970s. Yes, and my father was, when he died, sadly, on his deathbed, he was really grappling with his uh, conscience about some of the things he'd done whilst he was still in. We left in the 70s when there was a great scandal within the cult and my, and my parents left. But before that, my father was what he called later a brown shirt. And I'd say, you can't compare yourself to a brown shirt. You know, you can't describe yourself as Nazi youth. But in his head, that's what he had done. You know, he had become one of the men who would go around making people confess, putting them under pressure, um, reporting on people, deciding on the fate that that people had, you know, when they had been accused of misdemeanours. So for a little while, he had that role. And he had that role because if you didn't have that role, you know, if you questioned it, you'd be out. But I think for a while he don't, he genuinely did believe. I don't think he believed the religious side of it, but I think he believed the system that the cult was promoting, uh, which was, you know, drive out all impurity. Um, so, yes, my father was an exactor. 
and died struggling with his memories of those years and the terrible things he did, some of which he told me on his deathbed and some of which I was able to, you know, recount in the book itself. And actually, you're telling this story, your story and his story, was the fulfilling of his deathbed wish. You did this very much with his blessing and maybe because you could and he couldn't. Yes, it was just agonising to watch him. He was halfway through writing the account of those brethren years, what he called the Nazi decade, which was when the thumbscrews were on. I mean, it was terrible, terrible 10 years. I I mean, it It's still just as bad now, but in those years it was really frenzied. And so my father was trying to write it and had been trying for about seven years and just couldn't get through what he called the thicket. In other words, his own unconscious reluctance to go back into it. So it was clear to me that A, he was running out of time and B, he couldn't do it. It was just too painful to him, but also impossible for him to get the distance because he was still so messed up by his experience. So that's when I made the promise. And, you know, five years after he died, I took out all of the papers, all of the documents he'd left, all of the diaries, all of the extraordinary record of what he had managed to collect during that time and started to try to complete not only what he saw, but also what I saw as a child, because, you know, he was very preoccupied with the male side of it all, you know, the theological battles, the overlords, if you like, fighting each other, Um, whereas what I was able to see from the perspective of the child is what was happening to the women and what was happening to the children. So that's how I came to write In the Days of Rain, with with this dual perspective. The result is that It reads very much like a detective story in parts, rather like In Cold Blood or something. You are re-examining the evidence, the evidence that you saw as a child with an uninformed eye because you knew no different, and trying to interpret what was going on around you now that you live totally outside that world. Yes, It was the only way of doing it. It was the only way of doing it because it was a process of discovery for me. Once my father had died, it was as if he'd left me this mystery. You know, he'd left me some very, very detailed information. But there were other things I didn't know, like, when did this cult become a cult? What is a cult? What is a sect? You know, what's the difference between a sect and a cult? When does a cult become a cult? Um, But also... How did it work? You know, how did the money work inside there? How did the confessions work? Because I knew there'd been mass confessions and I also knew about sexual scandal that had severed the group. So there were so many things I didn't know. But I also knew that this was the time in my life, in my early 50s, when I had the skills. You know, I'd spent, since I'd gone to university, I'd been honing my historical research skills. I'd been honing my my interview skills, I've been, uh, you know, I understood about how to work an archive, how to look for things that were between the lines or hidden. Um, So suddenly what I had, you know, was a kind of set of skills that would enable me finally to tackle this very, very painful history. And that one that, although we left when I was eight, was still painful to me. You know, there are still things that I saw and heard and felt as a child that I can hardly bear to recover. And at the same time, I also had what many would describe as a happy childhood. You know, we were well looked after. Brethren look after their children, but they also brainwashed them and they terrified them. I mean, we were told that if we didn't comply, if we asked the wrong questions, if we questioned the system, then we would be left behind when the rapture came. You know, I everyone we knew, all of our parents, all of our kin, would disappear and we would be left behind to face essentially Armageddon. Um, And that is a terrible thing to do to a child. Absolutely, to me now, I think a great and grave sin and something that should not be allowed. Um, Because, you know, you trust your parents, you trust your grandparents, you know, you've got nobody to check that information with. Nobody, no teacher or or, or doctor said to me, actually, there are people who don't believe that the rapture's coming, (laughs) you know, who might tell you otherwise. Uh, 
So I, I say it partly because I feel sorry for the child that I was, who absolutely believed it and, and, and barely slept through most of her childhood because she was afraid that she was going to be left behind, but also for all of the thousands of other children who are currently being told that stuff by the exclusive brethren. And the adults as well. You tell a heartbreaking story about a pair of sisters who were fundamentally bullied to death. And actually, they are the same sisters who you dedicate Dark Earth to. Yes, you're one of the very, very few people to have noticed that. <laughs> Those two sisters, Elsie and Winnie Rhodes, let's name them, were running an egg farm. Um, they were brethren. And during the Nazi decade, as my father called it, uh, they were told that they could no longer be part of the egg marketing board. And you can't be an egg farmer and not be part of the egg marketing board. They were told that the stamps that their eggs had on them from the egg marketing board were the stamp of Satan. Uh, and so they had to stop. Um, essentially, I think the brethren were trying to get their land off them because they had quite a bit of land. And those two sisters who, you know, obviously could no longer farm and had all of these chickens. And, you know, they'd walked together into a pond and drowned themselves no longer able to see a future, terrified, presumably, of what they'd done. Uh, so why did I dedicate Dark Earth to them? Because I wanted an alternative story. <laughs> you know, two sisters, bullied, hounded, being tracked down by the overlord, but who find a way of fighting back and of turning the stories back on the men themselves. Um, so that's why I dedicated it to them. But yeah, Elsie and Winnie and all the other women, women and men actually, who committed suicide through the long decades of the exclusive brethren's uh, rule. I think we can all hear how your upbringing forged your determination to question orthodoxy. And something else that comes out from In the Days of Rain is that when you did pick up the encyclopedia that you were allowed to have in the house growing up, all the pages on Darwin had been razored out because he too was seen as an agent of Satan or the monkey man. Is that what sparked your interest in Darwin and led you to write your two books about him, Darwin and the Barnacle and Darwin's Ghost? Yes, not directly. I think I, re I think I realised when I was writing in the days of rain, actually, it's like often people would say to me, well, you know, you're a literature professor. How come you spent so much time on Darwin? Well, you know, the easy answer is that so many of the people I was reading and teaching and writing about in the 19th century were influenced by Darwin in one way or the other. So it's not that unusual that somebody who writes about 19th century literature should write about Darwin, but two books, <laughs> two books and such big ones and so and so detailed. Um, I think now, yeah, it seems obvious to me. So when I was a child, the encyclopedia was where I spent a lot of my time. Uh, poor sad kid. No, I wasn't a sad kid. I was having a whale of a time. I loved the encyclopedia. Um, but I often went looking for information there. Uh, we didn't. We weren't allowed any other books, no children's books, no novels, etc. Um, so the encyclopedia was where I spent my time, and I went looking for the Monkey Man because I thought he sounded so interesting. This man who everybody was telling me, you know, was the mouthpiece of Satan, that he was trying to persuade all of these gullible humans that they had descended from monkeys. You know, that just sounded like a great story. So I went looking for Darwin only to discover that the pages on Darwin and on Darwinism and on evolution had been razored out of the encyclopedia. All I could see was a sharp stump down the spine. Uh, so years later, my father confirmed that my grandfather had razored these pages out. I will not have wickedness in my house, he had said when they had arrived. And uh, so, of course, eventually, as a curious child, I found my way to the school encyclopedia and found the Darwin pages there. And I think I read them when I was about seven, six or seven. And of course, really hard to make sense of them. But I went back several times and read them again. And also just was really struck by what a nice man he looked, even if he did look a bit like a monkey with his heavy brows. <laughs> um, 
And I think, therefore, that way of seeing, as I came to fully understand it, you know, a world that was mutable, moving, adapting, changing, constantly in flow, some things being destroyed, other things coming into being, was such a beautiful alternative way of seeing the world, an alternative to the black and white, you know, the sharp light, the sharp lines of the the brethren. I mean, not everything in the brethren was ugly, but it was very absolute, you know, there were no shades anywhere, there were no shadows. And it just seemed to me that the world that Darwin had described, regardless of whether we were descended from monkeys, I mean, that was fascinating in itself, but, you know, it was a world of beautiful, you know, what he calls endless forms, you know, to me and to my imagination, that was utterly absorbing. And so, yeah, not surprising that years later, so it wasn't just, I've been forbidden to think about Darwin, therefore I will write two books on Darwin, it didn't work like that. It's just that sometimes curiosity is spiked by prohibition, right? (laughs) And uh, this particular kind of prohibition, and then the discovery that I made in secret in the in the school library about what Darwinism was was just very beautiful and very um, very hopeful to me compared to what I'd been raised with. Clearly it's absolutely intrinsic to the way you write and think that stories of all types from all angles should be available to everybody and I know that you are deeply committed to having your books made into audiobooks for those of us who are print disabled and there's a bit of a family thing going on as we'll find out after the break. This is My Life in Books on AMI-audio with Red Sale. We're back in a moment. Welcome back to My Life in Books. This episode, I'm in conversation with Rebecca Stott, who is so committed to audiobooks that she actually narrated her memoir, In the Days of Rain, herself. Rebecca, was that a natural choice for you, or did you have to be cajoled into doing so by your publisher? Oh, that's interesting. I don't know. Um, I was, I've never done it before. I've never read an audiobook before, but I do love reading. Uh, I think I would have been very happy having a period of my career as an audio reader. <laughs> I love reading aloud. I love cadences and the sounds of sentences and getting the rhythms right and so on. Um, so, yeah, no, I jumped at it because I thought it would be really interesting to do, but I think I quite quickly realised it was going to be quite affecting to, to you know, because writing in the days of rain was hard for me. You know, I was having to face family secrets and my own feelings as a child and you know some really quite distressing material as well as some quite funny material so it and and my relationship with my dad which is key to me as as a human being you know he was tremendous tremendous man and a really difficult man and he's at the heart of uh in the days of rain of course so you know there were passages like my dad's death that i had to narrate for instance that I thought, oh goodness, I'm not going to be able to do this. Just, you know, hearing the catch in your voice. And then thinking, well, if the reader hears that, that's okay. You know, that's all right. Um, So I was in a tiny studio. I had a great audio technician or or, or director or whatever it is on the other side of the glass who got me to reread things if I stumbled, but, you know, basically chilled and and praised me along through three days. I had to take uh, special tablets for my throat because I think there was a lot of, God, it sounds really mad, but uh, there was a lot of resistance to reading that book out loud because I was, as it were, giving away quite a lot of the cult secrets. And so hearing myself read it out loud, I could feel sometimes my throat really tighten. And that would be, I think, a sort of unconscious fear of the consequences of telling this particular story. So yes, it was a struggle, um, but also, you know, who else could have done it? Lots of people could have done it, but I'm glad I did do it. (laughs) The emotion certainly comes through in your narration, but not possibly quite so much the struggle. And I've actually chatted to that producer and he said you were a bit of a natural. He'd scheduled in four days and you knocked it off in three. 
Yeah, that's true. Because I mean, once I started, you know, in a way you just want to keep going. Like when you're reading, you just, you get so immersed in something. So yes, we did do it in three rather than four. And I would love to do it again. I hope somebody asks me to, 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 to do an audiobook again, because I would really love to do it. Well, let's hope that somebody's listening. However, you do have a bit of competition within your own family because the narrator who reads Dark Earth, Hannah Morrish, is your daughter. Yeah, the very talented, rather extraordinary Hannah Morrish. So, yeah, she, she's, she's been up in uh, Royal Shakespeare Company. She's played alongside Rafe Fiennes on the National Theatre stage. So, you know, she has a very, very good track record, but she has found it difficult getting into the world of audiobooks. Many of her friends do them. But I think it's quite hard to start because you need to have a voice agent, which is different from your main kind of theatre agent or film agent. And so when people came to me and said, did I want to suggest somebody for Dark Earth? I thought it had to be her. And it had to be her, not just because I wanted to give her a leg up. (laughs) I mean, what mother doesn't want to give their daughter a leg up? But... Um, because she has a voice that's very similar to mine. She knows how I would read it. The two sisters at the heart of Dark Earth are based on her and her sister. Isla is very much based on Hannah. And Hannah can do voices. Oh my goodness, she can do like lots of different, you know, intonations and dialects and and so on. So so I asked, um, thinking they would say, no, she's never done one before. And they said, great, let's do it. Uh, so she did. She loved it. She sent me a message from the same studio that I was in, which was <laughs> great. And she also had fabulous um, people working with her who knew it was her first time. And uh, she raced through it, loved it. And then she sent me a text just as she finished, just saying, oh, mum, she said, I've just given myself the chills. She'd done the final scene, the big finale. And um, she just said, I've given myself the chills. And I thought, that's, you know, that's going to be good. It's going to be good. (laughs) Uh, And then she uh, was asked to do a second audio book, which is called Joan by the wonderful writer Catherine Chen. And she did that. That was a really difficult book because it's all about Joan of Arc and there are all these different French accents she needed to get and regional accents and also tell this complicated story and a very long story. And for that, she won an award. So, you know, clearly she can do it. So this wasn't just nepotism. (laughs) Your books are very well suited to being read out loud. And I suspect that as an author, you read your work aloud to yourself after you've written it down. And you, for many years, taught creative writing at one of the top universities in the UK. Would that be one of your main tips for authors read your work out aloud and what other tips would you have yeah I really would uh we all stress that I think we all stress that not just because it's what people say about writing read it aloud but because we've all discovered it as writers the people who teach on the UEA program you know you can't really be a writer without reading your work aloud and that's not just creative work I think it's also academic work as well you know you need to be able to hear the cadences of your sentences and the shapes of your sentences and that's you know I often say to my students even the ones who are just writing essays read it out loud and hear where the sense goes or hear where it gets awkward or where you stumble because those are the sentences you really need to go back and rewrite to not to make them all entirely smooth you know you want a surface of your of your writing that is varied you know you want some scratchy bits and you want some silky bits and you want you know so so you want a lot of variation and stops and starts are good and sometimes long sentences are good with complicated clauses but where you stumble is often going to be the sentence where the reader stumbles as well so reading aloud not just for fluidity but for variation of tone and sound, uh, but also for sense is absolutely crucial. Other things, just cutting. I mean, for me, I'm a very wordy writer. I throw a lot of words down and then it's all about cutting, cutting, cutting back. I still don't do it enough. I'm still learning. We all are still learning as writers, but I think going back and taking out as many 
surplus words as you can. That's and that's often adverbs and adjectives. But I use a lot of them. Um, you know, there there are some in the creative writing world who would say you should use minimal uh, adjectives and adverbs. But you know, I just don't think there should be any rules. It works or it doesn't work, and we have very different readers who expect very different things of us. Well. Fantastic advice for aspiring writers and already published writers as well. And after the break, I hope that you will share some of the books that have really resonated with you as a reader. Catch up with this and every episode of My Life in Books by visiting ami.ca and searching for My Life in Books. More from Red Sale and his guest in a moment. Welcome back to My Life in Books. This week, I'm in conversation with Rebecca Stott. So far, we've discussed the books that she's written, but now it's time to hear about some of the books that she has enjoyed. Rebecca, was there a book that you read as a youngster that made you fall in love with reading or want to become an author? I am actually going to choose for this a book by Enie Blyton called The Secret Island. I write about it in my memoir, In the Days of Rain. Just to give you the context very quickly, we weren't allowed to read books. I stole this book from the library and it was a book about a group of children who run away from some bad adults and set up camp on an island and uh, live independently and figure out how to, I don't know, grow things. And they, at one point they steal a cow and manage to smuggle it over to the island and hide it. So it was, for me, it was a extraordinarily transformative book because it made me realise that there were stories out there that were obviously made up that were also about children thinking for themselves. Fantastic. I love that book too. <laughs> Did you read it? Yes, and The Valley yeah. of Adventure, which I think was, uh, was my favourite. <laughs> and is there a book that on a rainy day you'd like to curl up with and reread? Yes, now this is an unusual choice as well, because it's probably not a, a high pleasure book or a, an easy read, but it's by Henry James and it's called The Turn of the Screw. It's very short and it is a kind of ghost story um, about uh, a governess who goes to look after two children in a mysterious house and bad things start to happen. What I love about this book is I have read it maybe 20 or 30 times and I see new things in it every time. It's, it's like a long, short story. It has all the familiar ingredients, you know, a haunted house or, or a mysterious country house, secrets, ghosts, a governess. So it's like Jane Eyre. It's like, you know, so many of the, the gothic novels of the 19th century. But what James does with it is he makes us wonder who is seeing what. You know, is the governess seeing what she tells us she's seeing or is she seeing something else? You know, so it begins to become a story about perception and about misperception as well. It's not that she is just making things up. She is genuinely seeing what she's seeing, but she may not be entirely well. She may be uh, projecting her own fantasies or, or terrors onto what she's seeing. Or are the things she's seeing absolutely there? Uh, we never really know. Um, and again, it's a book about how truth is always multi-sided. And it's one of those books that is incredibly difficult not to read in just one sitting. Yes, yes. <laughs> and finally, is there a book you've read recently that you'd like to share with the listeners? Yes, it's a book, a very unusual book that's not been out long. It's called Quen, C-W-E-N, which is like an, uh, an ancient word for queen, I believe. And it's by a writer called Alice Albina. And essentially, it's another island story. Um, it's a group of women who have gone out to an island off the coast of Britain. And they have started to try to overturn its patriarchy. Um, maybe this is obviously the kind of book that I would be interested in. 
But they've done it subtly, they've done it carefully. You know, the women start to group together and they start challenging some of the decisions of some of the senior men in, on the island. Uh, other people get to hear about it, more women start to come to the island. And then, you know, I don't want to give a spoiler, but everything goes wrong. Like a sort of revolution happens and then misfires and, and the whole of the story is told as if retrospectively through court reports. It reminded me of Margaret Atwood. It reminded me of The Tempest in parts as well. I mean, it's very unusual, very original, full of feminist ideas and feminist debates and feminist conflicts. Um, and at the same time, a really good story. Uh, I've given it to both of my daughters and they raced through it. So we have yet to have our dinner where we will sit and all three of us talk about it because we've all loved it. I, I really think it's remarkable. Rebecca Stott, thank you so much for sharing your passion for reading with the listeners and also for taking us further into the world of several of your books. There's so much more that we could have covered, but I will look forward to inviting you back in years to come to discuss books to come. Thank you. Thank you for your great questions. Thanks again to my guest, Rebecca Stott and to the show's producer, Sean Priest, He and I are already working on the next episode, so don't forget to join us, same time, same place, to listen to another top author talking books. In the meantime, if you'd like to drop us a line or leaf through our back catalogue, here's how. Keep in touch with Red by emailing feedback at ami.ca or leave a voicemail on 844 844- 971-1999 and share your favorite reads. And don't forget, you can listen again to this episode and every episode of this program by visiting ami.ca and searching for My Life in Books or find us in whatever podcast player or smart device you use. Catch you next time. The Walrus is Canada's conversation, and you're invited to take part. Download AMI's Voices of the Walrus, where professional narrators read selected articles from the magazine. Available wherever you download your AMI podcasts.